Good evening, everybody. Uh, it's uh, kind of nostalgic here. This is the second to last time we're going to be here. Right? Next week is our last time at the evening uh, service in this location. So if you're new, uh, keep in mind that we're going to be moving to a new location two weeks from now. Uh, but we are going through the Psalms, been going through the Psalms for several months. We took a break and then came back to them. And so I'm not sure exactly how many more weeks we have, but I'm in the middle of a, or this is the second of a two-part series on justice. And um, so just in a nutshell, last week I talked about uh, God's justice. And so sort of titling these two, last week was God's justice, this week uh, is human justice. And just to review a little bit of what I talked about last week, uh, the concept of justice is really core to the whole Bible. It's all the way through from beginning to end. Uh, and in a lot of ways, you could say the concern for justice that we have in our society today uh, really comes deeply from that uh, Jewish and Christian roots uh, because it doesn't really come from the sort of official worldview that people might talk about of sort of there being nothing, you know, we're just in a mechanistic world, we're all just atoms and molecules. Uh, but we can't really live with that. Uh, we can't really live with that idea that there is no real morality, there is no absolute justice. We deep in our hearts very much believe in absolute justice. Uh, and maybe uh, more and more in our society, uh, we're moving more toward that, away from sort of a relativism and toward a sense that there really is uh, a right and wrong. Uh, and so as I talked about last week, that really justice flows from a concept of the basic dignity of all people, uh, that all people are made in the image of God. And I talked uh, last week a little bit, uh, and I put in some of the Proverbs again uh, in this week in your additional scriptures, uh, how God especially says the poor and the weak and the oppressed are made in the image of God, uh, and that if we ignore them, if we, if we um, give them injustice, that we're really confronting God himself. Uh, and so last week I talked about that hope of the final kingdom, uh, the, the final judgment of God. And so, you know, sometimes we think of that final hope as a sort of that final judgment and think of that with fear. We think of that with um, hellfire and brimstone preaching. Uh, that's, you know, kind of scary. That's not something we really like. But actually, it's always presented in the Bible as a hope that the wicked don't win. The wicked don't live on forever uh, oppressing. And they also don't get away with it. So if there was no final judgment... Uh, you could get away with some pretty evil things, uh, and nobody would ever know about it in a lot of cases, and then you die, and, and nobody would ever know the difference. Uh, and so we talked last week about how God calls people to account. He knows their thoughts, and he knows their deeds. Uh, and so all of our human justice uh, is really rooted in that concept that God himself will be the judge. And again, I want to just emphasize, as scary as it can be, that concept of justice gives dignity to all people. It says that what you do matters forever that what you do is extremely significant to God, that he will call you to account for it, uh, and you're not just an animal running around doing random things, uh, but you are actually valued so much by God that he will account for everything that you do uh, and call you to account for it. Uh, now, that leaves a question, though, for this week. Uh, to what degree should people, uh, and Christians in particular, participate in what we might call earthly justice? Uh, a lot of people... Uh, would be very comfortable maybe with the idea of God's final justice, uh, but be really uncomfortable with participating in uh, being a policeman, uh, being in the army, uh, maybe being a prison guard, uh, or being a judge, uh, or for that matter, maybe being a politician who makes laws to tell all of the above 
how they should act and how they should behave. Um, and even, uh, I would say, in the church, I often encounter people who are extremely uncomfortable as parents in meeting out justice to their children, uh, who really have an extreme discomfort with the idea of punishing children, of, of telling children, uh, you have to do this. And fundamentally, uh, I would say all justice, uh, when it comes to dealing with evil people, involves uh, telling people or forcing people to do something they don't want to do. Uh, and we're very uncomfortable. It doesn't feel uh, somehow very Christian to be in the situation, uh, in the position of, of enforcing justice. Uh, so as an alternative to that, uh, really going all the way back 2,000 years uh, in the church, there's always been a movement of people who would say Christians should completely pull out of any kind of justice system. Uh, and so even in the very early church, there was Christians who would say, you can't be baptized if you are a soldier in the army. You can't be baptized if you are uh, working for the Roman government uh, in any way. Uh, so it's a long-standing uh, school of thought. And um, uh, many people would sort of root this in the words of Jesus, uh, where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uh, said things like, do not judge, do not oppose the evil one, turn the other cheek, uh, and so on. So that would be a whole other sermon. I'm not going to commentate the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but I, I will um, uh, be addressing the scripture that Jesus quotes uh, in this passage. But before I do that, let me just mention this sort of a, a, another option that sometimes Christians fall into. And there actually was an official school of thought uh, by a guy named Reinhold Niebuhr in the middle of the 20th century who actually made this official uh, calling Christian pragmatism. Uh, and basically what I would say is that's a view in which we participate in justice, but we kind of feel uncomfortable with it. We're kind of half-hearted about it. Uh, and so we might say, well, uh, yeah, and Eber again said this explicitly. Uh, it was really during World War II when he felt like I can't honestly, as someone who opposes all government or all Christian participation in government, nevertheless, it seems like World War II to stop Hitler is a good thing. So he came up with sort of a pragmatic thing to say, well, the ideal is never to have any uh, you know, participation uh, in systems like that. But pragmatically, sometimes Christians have to, uh, it's a better thing to participate uh, in systems like that. And so sometimes we approach government uh, and justice and things like that with a sort of half-heartedness of, well, you know, um, I, I think it's good to have law, but I would never want my, one of my kids to be a policeman. Uh, or, you know, I think I'm glad that we live in a safe place, but uh, I really, you know, I'm not comfortable, uh, you know, ever with somebody being in the army or something like that. Um, so what does the Bible say about human justice, about systems of justice? Uh, well, I mentioned Jesus, and I'm not going to do a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to have Grill the Preacher after the service, so around 8 o'clock, uh, we'll field questions. If people want to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we can do that. But one of the things I want to emphasize is that Jesus uh, was a student of the Old Testament. Uh, he quoted the Bible, uh, which for him was the Old Testament at the time, uh, all the time. And in particular, he quoted this psalm that we have in front of us, uh, Psalm 82. Uh, so let me read this psalm to you now. Uh, and Jesus quotes this, uh, and so we're going to look a little bit about how he treated it, uh, and then uh, we'll exposit it a little bit. So um, this is uh, from the Word of God, from the Old Testament, Psalm 82, and our tradition here is to say after the reading, this is the Word of God, and the response is, 
Thanks be to God. So hear the word of God. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. So let me read you the, the quote in which Jesus uh, cites this. Uh, it's in John chapter 10. Uh, it's in your additional scriptures. Uh, Jesus is in the middle of a debate about people telling him, how can you say that you're the son of God? Uh, and he says, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods. That's a quote here from Psalm 82. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Um, notice here what Jesus does. He specifically affirms this psalm as the word of God. Uh, and he even takes it to a higher level. He says the scripture cannot be broken. And so he has an extremely high view of scripture. And to say scripture cannot be broken is to say every little bit, every jot and every tittle, uh, as he said in another place, uh, really is, is crucial, uh, and none of it can be, can be left out. So what I want to do now is just sort of make a few points looking at this psalm here uh, and really think about what does it say about human justice, uh, really under the assumption that Jesus would be affirming uh, this psalm. And I'll come back to what he meant when he was quoting it in that one particular place uh, in my second point. So here's the main thing that I would say that comes out. This, this is a picture now of the divine council, so to speak. It's sort of a, a little bit of a metaphorical picture of um, the rulers of the earth coming before God uh, with his council of angels, sort of like God is the ultimate king, and he has his court. And the angels are all standing around uh, uh, in, their, in their own uh, judgment. And the leaders of the earth, the kings of the earth, are being brought into his presence. And God is now judging them, uh, who are the judges of other people. Uh, and he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And then we have four commands. Uh, there's a lot of times in uh, the Old Testament, things are done in parallel. So they're not necessarily four different things, but they're imperative. They're in the imperative form. It's not just, it would be good if... Or maybe you should, but it is a command. Give justice to the weak, maintain the right of the afflicted, rescue the weak and the needy, and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So there are four imperatives. Essentially, passivity is not allowed. Uh, he is not saying, uh, sit back and don't do evil. He's saying, you are in sin, you are an unjust judge if you passively allow the wicked to prosper, if you allow the wicked to continue. You have a calling as a leader, uh, as one of them who he says are gods. Uh, you have a command to actively go forth uh, and pursue justice. It's uh, not enough to say you didn't do something evil. You actually have a command actively uh, to do that. And this is a theme that really is all through scripture, uh, which can be called the rescue theme. 
Uh, and so, if you look in your additional scriptures, um, there's a, a verse that sounds very similar to the uh, the psalm here, uh, from Psalm, uh, tw- sorry, from Proverbs 24. Again, in the imperative, a command: Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, "Behold, we did not know this," does he? Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does he not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay a man according to his work? So in, in that Proverbs passage, we have again the idea that God knows what's really going on. Uh, he is omniscient. He knows what's going on. He knows what's in your heart. And so even not only is not doing evil not enough, but saying, well, I didn't know, and therefore I can't be held accountable, is also not good enough. Uh, you, you are sort of required, uh, especially if you're in a position of authority, to seek out, to find out uh, the evil that's going on and to not passively uh, sit back. And I think in our hearts we know this. this is why I think that school of Christian uh, pragmatism kind of grew with uh, the man I mentioned, uh, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, there just seems something deeply wrong uh, to many people to sit back and say, I'm not going to do anything to stop Hitler. Uh, you know, I'm going to sort of take this moral high ground uh, and, and sort of step back and not actively oppose him. Uh, there's something deep in our souls, as I talked about last week, um, where we want justice. We, we really have a deep sense of justice. And sort of the image I have, uh, which really presses this uh, home, is you know, someone who, um, uh, let's say there's a, a father and a family uh, in a home, uh, and there's someone who's breaking into the home, who is attacking the children, uh, is attacking the wife. I mean, how would we feel in our hearts if that father was to say, well, you know what? Uh, Jesus said, don't oppose evil. I will just stand here passively uh, and let you do it. Um, there's just something that resonates with us. And so the pragmatist said, well, um, yes, I know I would actually stop them, but it would be wrong for me to do it, but I need to do a little sin because it would be sort of pragmatically best to rescue my family. Uh, I don't think that's at all what Scripture says. Scripture says the opposite. It says, if you see the weak being attacked and you have the power to rescue them, you are, you are not just allowed to, you are commanded to rescue. Uh, there is a rescue theme all through Scripture. And God adopts that rescue theme for himself. And so we have, for instance, in the Old Testament, Abraham rescuing his cousin Lot, who is being carried away. Uh, once he succeeds, he defeats the kings. They have a battle. Uh, he rescues them. And then another king who is used in the New Testament to represent Christ, a king called Melchizedek, comes and blesses Abraham. He doesn't say, how dare you did this violent act. He actually blesses him uh, uh, for his act of rescue. And then God's salvation is presented as rescue. That it's as if we were uh, defeated by Satan, that we were in his chains, and God uh, got on his white horse and rode to the rescue, uh, to rescue us. And we see that uh, not just metaphorically, but in the, uh, in the Exodus, when uh, the Israelites are you know, imprisoned and enslaved by the Egyptians, uh, God does a series of miracles to physically rescue them uh, and pull them out, and they're rejoicing over this. And so let me just emphasize, this is really uh, my whole first point here. Um, in the Bible, to not rescue when you, when you have the power uh, is, 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 is reprehensible. It's not just an option to rescue, but we are actually commanded to rescue, 
And if we allow the wicked to prevail when we have uh, the authority and the ability to stop them, uh, it's not just, oh, well, that was an option, but actually we are the opposite of heroic. Uh, we are abdicating a role that God has given to us. So let me move on to the second thing that I think we see in this uh, uh, passage here. And it's a little bit uh, obscure uh, in verse uh, 6 and 7. This is the part that Jesus quotes uh, where God says to these leaders, you are God's son of the most high, all of you. Uh, now, he's not saying, well, you are actually divine in your being. Uh, but I think there is a sense in which he is saying that those in authority in this world uh, have a high calling and in some ways actually stand in for God uh, to execute his justice in a limited way. Uh, and we see that in Romans chapter 13, which is also uh, in the New Testament and should be in your additional scriptures here. Uh, I'll read just uh, some parts of this here. Um, Let every person be subjected to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Uh, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And then continuing on, he, that is the authority, is God's servant for your good. Uh, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Uh, so what we have here is a picture, and again, many people are uncomfortable with this, the idea that God has instituted limited uh, earthly authorities, in some cases, to actually be agents of punishment, to agents of his wrath uh, against evil. Uh, now, we can probably think of a hundred objections of how many tyrants there have been in the world who have abused this authority, uh, how many people have um, uh, passively allowed uh, tyrants to go on because they said, well, he's the agent of God and so on. And yet what we see in the psalm here is, yes, there are evil authorities and God will bring them to account because that's what the scene is here is the authorities themselves being brought to account. But he doesn't say to them, how dare you judge? How dare you have laws? How dare you enforce laws? He calls them account for not enforcing the laws justly. He calls them to account for, for being tyrants. Uh, and so we have a picture in which we can very realistically say, yes, the idea of authorities acting in the place of God can be done really terribly. It can go terribly wrong. And you can probably think of a dozen examples uh, just sitting here. Uh, but that doesn't undermine the fact that God actually has commanded uh, authorities in this world to judge justly. Uh, and so for those who judge wickedly, for those who are tyrants, actually there's more hope here because it says God will actually call them to account. Uh, and yet um, we have that, that fact that they are in some ways treated as agents for God. And so when he says here, you are God's, He's not saying, well, I've given you this divine spirit, but essentially he's raising them up to this very high sense of calling and responsibility to say that you are, uh, in some sense, like a god to these people. You have the power uh, of, of judging right and wrong. And yet he brings them right back down again in the next verse, verse 7. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince, uh, and you shall be judged. And that's exactly what's going on in the psalm. They are being brought before uh, the heavenly court. Um, so uh, I, I won't go into great detail about what Jesus was arguing in John chapter 10. Uh, again, we can talk about that in the um, 
in The Gorilla Creature, but uh, essentially he's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He often does this. Think about when he said, like, an evil judge would do this, how much more than, you know, a good God would, would do this. Uh, and so here uh, he's saying, even these people who are in positions of authority are called the sons of God. How much more the true son of God, who is uh, God's uh, king, sent in to execute justice uh, in the world itself. So, uh, again, first point uh, is rescue. It's is really a, 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 a command of God. The second is that authorities of this world have a high responsibility, and they are called to account for executing justice. Um, I just want to say a couple words about what that justice looks like in my next point, and there's so much that could be said. There's been books and books written uh, on what just government looks like and so on. Um, but in verse 2 uh, and 3, I want to focus in on uh, just some parts of this here, where it says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. The word partiality there <coughs> is really central. Um, the principle that we see uh, all the time in scripture going through uh, of just judgment is impartiality, of, of having, uh, not being influenced by this person being rich, this person being poor, uh, not being influenced by they're my friend, not being influenced by uh, they gave me a bribe or, or they pulled strings or anything like that. And so uh, I, I put this statement uh, in, the, uh, in the outline uh, fundamentally, the, the principle of justice in the Old Testament is impartiality, uh, not one of equality, not one of saying that we have to make everything equal for people, uh, but rather we have to judge impartially between people. Uh, and um, this is somewhat maybe controversial in our day. Uh, there are a lot of systems of socialism, social justice, whatever, in our world uh, that would say the goal is equality. Uh, and whenever we see inequity or whenever we see inequality, then by definition there had to be injustice. Um, the Bible is very realistic about injustices that can flow from inequality. Uh, so in a very real way, you know, when you look at um, the injustice that's in view uh, in the Old Testament, very often it is bribery. Uh, rich people can pay bribes and poor people can't pay bribes. Uh, and so, like, very quickly, you see a chance for so partiality to follow from inequality. Um, but the goal is not uh, equality per se, scripturally, and this is really ensconced in uh, the Ten Commandments. Uh, if you ever think about this, that the Tenth Commandment says, do not covet. Fundamentally says, there's going to be people with more than you in one thing or another, uh, and it's actually a sin to covet and to demand that you have the same as that other person. Uh, and yet, uh, the Bible is extremely realistic about saying, uh, given that there are rich people and poor people, that itself is not intrinsically injustice. Nevertheless, there is a huge sense of uh, temptation to partiality when there are such inequities. Uh, and so, in our day, I think, you know, it's not so much bribes. I mean, in the United States, certainly you'd be very naive if you thought nobody ever took or, or paid a bribe. Uh, but actually, probably much more in our society, and actually uh, read studies to this effect, um, there is simply the fact that 
rich people can pay a lot better lawyers, right? So that if you're rich, you can hire a really, really good lawyer, and that lawyer is probably going to make a really, really good case for you, uh, and that's going to probably get you uh, off. Uh, and public defenders, um, I know one personally, he's a really good guy, uh, but in general, um, they're not paid as much. Uh, they, uh, the, a lot of times, the people with the most smarts are going to go for the most money. Uh, and so we have a system in which, in, you know, in, sorry, partiality can come uh, from a system with inequity. Uh, but scripturally, there's never this command to say, prevent people from being wealthy uh, or, uh, or make sure that there is a minimum level of poverty that no one falls below. Uh, rather, there is a command for, for impartiality. Uh, and it works both ways. Not only do not take a bribe, uh, but also, and I think I put some of these in the additional scriptures, uh, do not follow the masses. Uh, let me see here. I think I have this in the additional, one of the additional scriptures here. Um, yeah, so in Exodus 22, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Partiality can sometimes work both ways. Sometimes we can say, well, um, I really want to help this person. Uh, I really, uh, you know, the, the, lots of people are demanding this, therefore I'm going to do that. Uh, impartiality uh, is really the rule uh, in Scripture. So let me just finish this section by saying there's two things that I would say are principles of Scripture uh, that it really uh, draws for us. One is uh, the rule of law, that no one is above the law, uh, no one is exempt from the law, and all have standing before God. And I think this psalm really drives that home, that even the king, the judge at the top of the whole thing, is held accountable before God's court. And so even when there is injustice in this world, God will hold them accountable. And the second, I would say, is even though there is not a command for um, making everything level, there is a command to be proactive in preventing injustice. And as I said before, it's not enough to simply say, well, uh, I'm just going to pay no attention, uh, and um, if somebody else is doing evil, then that's their business. Uh, there is a proactive command in Scripture to learn about, to know about, uh, and, to, and, to, and to work justice, to rescue, uh, to use biblical language, uh, those who are being oppressed, uh, wherever you may find that. So let me finish up, though, uh, then, with just... Uh, these thoughts. Um, last week and this week, really both psalms landed in the same place. So last week we saw some specific things about, um, about God. Uh, this week we see some things about human justice. But actually, both of these psalms and I would say all of Scripture uh, really have a premise is that in this world there is going to be tons of injustice. Uh, and you see that here in, um, in verse 5 here. It says, it's just almost like a, a parenthetical thing, you know, in the middle of this uh, psalm where, you know, God is calling these people to account and then he's talking to them and saying, you have been given this high calling. And then sort of in the middle it says, they have neither understanding nor knowledge. They walk about in darkness uh, and the foundations of the earth are shaken. Uh, the fact is that even leaders, uh, even uh, the best leaders uh, can be corrupted, uh, that there is injustice 
uh, in this world. And the Bible's extremely realistic about this, and I put some verses in your additional scriptures that talk about that, of just how uh, there is not going to be final justice in this world. And so what it lands on, both last week and this week, is God's justice, that God is the one, finally, who will put things to right. Uh, And I think we have to look at that and say, this is not escapism. This is not saying, uh, therefore, don't be concerned about justice. So just, you know, God will set things all right, so don't worry about anything. Rather, you can see here, there's a high responsibility for those who have the ability to affect justice. Uh, There is a command uh, to bring about justice. And yet, at the same time, there's a realism to say, yes, but um, they walk in darkness. There is going to be injustice in this world. And so I think when we, when we look at our present day, there's actually, I would say, every generation uh, has a desire, at least a certain segment of the, of the population, a desire to be heroic. I think all the way going back to like the knights and chivalry in the Middle Ages, uh, the abolitionists in the uh, Civil War, Uh, the greatest generation, World War II, uh, the pro-life movement of 20, 30 years ago, the social justice movement now, there is a sense in which we want to be part of a heroic cause. Um, We need to balance that with realism, not the realism that says, oh, I should just be pragmatic and let a little evil happen, Uh, but rather a realism that says, I can't miss that God is above it all. And I think no matter what your cause is, even evangelism itself, Uh, can be a cause that we adopt uh, in which we're willing to sort of crush people in order to advance our cause. Um, We can um, start to be twisted just oh so slightly to say I've got to bring about God's shalom in this earth and that's my main goal. Uh, And then my focus is off of God and my eternal perspective and my goal has been shifted to now what can I do to make this happen uh, even if it means I run roughshod over people, even if I uh, am unloving, uh, even if I am using uh, worldly means uh, and things like that, uh, whatever my good cause might be, um, when we make that sort of the be-all and end-all, we can be shifted off target and forget that it's really about God's justice. God is the one who is the final king, and, and it's really about him. And so we have this final verse here in verse 8. It lands... Just where we landed last week, arise, O God, you judge the earth, for you are the one who will inherit all the nations. Uh, We have um, a God who does judge. And when you look at people in the past who have done great things, you know, Wilberforce and the abolitionist movement and so on, they very much were driven by a sense that I can speak truth to power because God is the one who finally will judge. And so they had the confidence to say, I will stand up for this or for that. I don't care if I'm in an unpopular position or not, uh, because I know that God will be the final judge. And I think we need to rest there. Um, uh, Wherever we may fall in terms of what we're trying to do, uh, whether we want to bring about justice or not, um, we need to rest in the fact uh, that we have a judge who will really call us to account, uh, and yet we have that grace uh, from him through Jesus Uh, that we can be forgiven as well of our sins. And so maybe I could add this, uh, uh, balancing it with an eternal perspective. Are we fitting people for heaven? Uh, In all of our causes and all of our uh, things that we are doing, are we keeping that eternal perspective uh, to remember that we will end up 
uh, as citizens of heaven? Are we fitting people to be ready uh, to be in that? Are you fitting your heart? Are you fitting yourself uh, to be with God in eternity uh, in heaven as well? Uh, and so we have this great promise uh, that God will judge uh, and we can rest in that. Let's pray.